you can open your Bibles if you want to, um, to Psalm 78, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8, and uh, this is our scripture reading for this morning, so when you turn there, if you're um, up for it, go ahead and stand. We do this because when the scripture speaks, God speaks, and so we stand out of respect for God's word. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 8. A maskil of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to my, the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of Yahweh and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that they should set their hope in God, and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Well, we come this morning, and we've been making this trek of a series through the family. The first three weeks was tracing the story of the family through the scriptures, um, from Genesis, basically, to Revelation. And what we said is that um, from the beginning, from creation, God has had a plan for the natural family, the the husband and wife to be together, working together uh, to um, bring God's glory in display in the world. And That not only includes um, mom and dad, but kids working together in unity and diversity for God's glory in the world. We said there was a shift. There's a shift with the coming of Jesus Christ. You remember that promise, even after the fall of the uh, male offspring of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, uh, that promise of of really coming through the family and through the family structures. And we saw that shift coming with Jesus, who is that one. And uh, with the coming of Jesus, then there's a new family. There's the family of faith that gets emphasized so that all who repent and place their trust in Jesus, they are considered family. And we experience that family together in the local church. And ultimately, we'll experience it at the end of time when the, the son, when the king marries his bride, marries his church, and we enjoy fellowship with him in family for all eternity. So the natural family will eventually step off the scene to have only the family of faith. And last week we focused in a little bit more on family roles. Uh, the, the, even though the family of faith is taking center stage now, that doesn't mean that the New Testament devalues the natural family. Far from it. It values it, it uh, in the same roles from the beginning. And so we talked about those roles from Ephesians 5 and 6 last week. And now we zoom in a little bit more, and we look at parenting, particularly parenting. And uh, you may say, well, I'm here today, and maybe, uh, maybe you're not a parent, uh, uh, or maybe you're done parenting. Maybe you haven't, uh, um, maybe you've been a, a child, you, you're, but you're not a parent, or uh, maybe you're done parenting. Whatever stage of life, you may be saying, well, okay, they're talking about parenting, I can check out. Well, no, you can't check out, because the reality is, is... God has a plan for families, and even if you're not a part of a family, maybe you're not a parent yet, 
you need to know that plan, and you need to come alongside the, parent, um, uh, the family to, to encourage them in that way and in that plan. So even if you're not a parent or you're done parenting, well, we still want to hear these principles from the Scripture so that we can encourage those who are parenting and come alongside them. Come alongside them. Towards that end, uh, I just want to remind you, if you weren't here when we did announcements, that there are um, some resources beyond what I'm going to say this morning. Obviously, we have an hour. I can't tell you all the biblical principles there are or um, uh, develop them uh, about biblical parenting in an hour. So um, let's, uh, let's give you a couple resources to look at for further study. Uh, you can see those in your bulletin. Again, there's a podcast, the Family of Faith podcast that comes from FBC Spokane, my church up there, um, or the church I was a part of up there, really great, covers a lot of topics, and also a couple books, Shepherding a Child's Heart by Ted Tripp, and then Parenting by Paul David Tripp. But if you want to know more and you want to read more, and you should, those are some good resources or some good listening uh, to go. But as we go this morning, what we want to set is we want to set some anchor points. We want to set some compass points, some, some anchors to help us steer by as we think about parenting. And so the big idea for this morning is this, as you can see in your notes, nurture your children in training and admonition of the Lord. It's the language of Ephesians 6.4, which we read last week and we'll touch on again today. Nurture your children in training and admonition of the Lord through biblical parenting principles through biblical parenting principles. And so I want to give five principles this morning. They do build off one another. There's kind of a sequence here. They build on each other. And so that's where we're going this morning. Five biblical principles, five biblical parenting principles to help you nurture your children in training and admonition of the Lord. So let's look at number one. First biblical parenting principle and the most foundational. God must be the center of your family. God must be the center of your family. Now, where do we see this? Um, we see this multiple places, really, but even as we talked about in the, family, the story of the family from the beginning, remember Genesis 1, 26 through 28, God makes man in his own image. He makes them male and female. He tells them be fruitful and multiply. He established the family. But why did all of that happen? It's for God's glory, to display God's glory as the family exercises stewardship, rule, and dominion in the world, extends the borders of creation. It's to... Uh, proclaim, it's to proclaim God's glory. It's all about God. Family is all about God. And so God must be at the center of your family, and that must be palpable and evident. Let me take you to another place. It's a text we go to when we talk about parenting a lot, Deuteronomy 6. We've gone here before, but it is really crucial because you see this sequence, you see this foundational reality and this foundational principle that God must be the center of your family, Deuteronomy 6, 4. And what Moses is doing here, he just gave uh, the Ten Commandments again to the, the second generation, uh, or the children of the Exodus generation coming out uh, from slavery in Egypt. And he's really, in chapter 6, he starts unpacking all of the principles that were sh stated shorthand in the Ten Commandments. And so we get 6-4 this, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh. There is only one God. Well, what are the implications of that? Verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. With the whole of your being, you are to love God. 
Okay, what are the implications of that? So God is the only God. Because of that, you should love him with all of who you are as a person. What are the implications of that? Verse 6, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, you're going to hear God's commands and you're going to want to obey him because you love him. And then verse 7, this is where we get the parenting part. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, when you hear that, you kind of focus on, all right, I got to teach my children. I've got to teach the next generation about God and about to teach his commands. Well, that is true. But there's a sequence. There's a sequence. The foundation for parenting, as you can see from this text, is that you are committed to God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength first. You're, the whole of your being, the whole of your household is centered around God and who he is. And that's the foundation for even being able to talk about these, the commands of God, the ways of God, all of what you want to pass on to your children. Or put another way, you could try to teach children about the commands of God, who God is, and all of that, but if your household is not actually centered on God, if your life is not actually centered on God, if that is not what drives you and your family, kids will pick it up pretty quickly, and they will, they'll know. They'll know. They'll know whether it's a sham or not. And so it must be actually true that God is the center of your life, your love, your satisfaction, the delight of your soul. And not only that, but everything you do as a family, God must be at the center. Kids must not be at the center of the family, nor even the marriage ultimately at the center of the family, but God himself. But that does lead us into our second principle. So once you have that idea that God must be the center of your family, you need to keep coming back to that. Well, then the second principle for parenting, for biblical parenting, is this. Your marriage must be more important than your children. Your marriage must be more important than your children. Now, don't mishear me on this, because there's a way our culture talks. Our culture talks in this way, right? Maybe even a couple gets married, although that's um, increasingly rare, right? That commitment's increasingly rare, but then the couple's like, eh, we're not going to have kids because, uh, you know, that's a bother. It's going to cramp our style, so we're not going to do that. Well, that goes against the scriptures as well because the scriptures do celebrate children and see them as a blessing. Turn to one, Psalm 127. Psalm 127. Psalm 127. A song of a sense of Solomon. Unless Yahweh builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. So you can even see there that centrality of God in the household. And God needs to move and work for the household to succeed. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, here we go, verse 3. Behold, children are heritage from Yahweh and the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. 
Scripture values children. It loves children. God loves children. We can see that. And it's part of what normally should happen in a marriage. A man and woman come together. We can see that from the beginning. Uh, The husband's to lead the family. The wife's to come alongside as a complimentary helpmate. And then children are supposed to come from that. And that is a blessing from God. And yet, and yet... There's, a, there's a, uh, a danger there. There's a danger in focusing more on children than on the marriage. See, marriage must be more important than your children. Why? Because even in Genesis 2 or in Ephesians 5, which we looked at last week, what is the foundation? Where do the children come from? What is the foundation of the family? It is the marriage. In other words, a man and a wife coming together in covenant relationship. Before God has witnessed, Malachi 2, 13 through 16 talks about it. It's a covenant relationship between man and wife before God as witness. That is the foundation of marriage. And we talked about last week from Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, God has always designed marriage ultimately to point to the love, the covenant love and faithfulness between Christ and his church. So what happens if you start elevating the children in a marriage above that relationship? You're distorting the picture between Christ and the church. Children need to see, they need to see a practical, tangible example of what it means for Christ to love his church, for the relationship between the church and Christ, a picture of the gospel, a concrete picture of the gospel, then marriage must be more important than your children. It is the foundation, it is a key foundation for being able to portray to your children Christ's relationship with the church. It gives it tangible expression, and they will know whether they are the center of the home or whether the marriage is. And if they see that they're the center of the home, it's going to reinforce the idea that, well, uh, uh, Christ is all about me, It's all about me. The world's all about me rather than Christ loves his church. Christ loves his people and seeing a concrete expression of that in the marriage. So first, God must be the center of your family. Second, your marriage must be more important than your children. And third, your children must be born again of God's initiative. Your children must be born again of God's initiative. Now, you might at this point be saying, wait a minute, when are we going to talk about how you parent? What, what does the scripture have to say about how you parent? Well, there are those things, but you have to understand it all takes place within the context, these principles that God is giving for how he wants the family to operate. But even as part of the backdrop of raising children, there is this idea, and you know this if you've been a parent for any length of time, or if you've been a child for any length of time, if you've been a person for any length of time, you know this reality. Your children are born with a sin nature. Your children are born with a sin nature. Uh, Turn to Psalms, since we're just in Psalms, turn to Psalm 51. This is kind of the key text or one of the quintessential texts talking about this reality. Because of the fall, because of what happened with Adam and Eve, and because, um, as we read in Genesis 5, that Adam begets children after his likeness and his image. Well, part of that is the passing on of Adam's sin nature. And David reflects on this in Psalm 51 as he's he's lamenting and he's confessing his sin with regard to murdering Uriah and having adultery with Bathsheba. Notice what he says in verse 5, to amplify 
his understanding of his sinfulness and the depth of his sinfulness. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not blaming his parents. What he's saying is, from the very get-go, from the very beginning, even from conception, which is where life starts in the womb, from the get-go, you have a, sin, a person with a sinful nature, a sinful nature. And given time, that will work its way out into behaviors that will clearly show that all children have a sin nature in Adam. If there's a human father involved, then that sin nature is passed on and there is it will display itself. So what is the need? Well, the need is expressed, and we've read this before, but we'll go back there, by Jesus to Nicodemus in John 3. Go back to John 3. John 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Did you catch that? What did Jesus just say? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's all it is. And that which is born of the spirit is is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, and he's remember who he's speaking to. He's talking to Nicodemus. He's um, uh, he's uh, born of um, of Abraham's family. He's of the Jews. He's of the chosen people, and yet he's telling Nicodemus that's not enough to be part of God's people. Not enough that you're born of the right people, God's people even. It's not enough to see God's kingdom. What needs to happen? What needs to happen is a new birth, not of flesh, which is the natural birth, but of the Spirit. The regenerating work of the Spirit of God in each individual's life such that that individual exercises faith in Jesus. You can see this another way, and we looked at this text um, when we were talking about the story of the family. Just turn back a couple pages to John 1, 12 through through 13, and you see that same reality just kind of portrayed in another way. It's talking about Jesus, talking about his preexistence, talking about his incarnation and setting that up. In verse 12, we see this, "...but to all who did receive him," and the him there is Jesus... So we're talking about that language of receive is the language of faith. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So if each individual person has a sin nature, each child has a sin nature, each person has a sin nature that's passed on through Adam, and at a given time, uh, they will commit acts of sin that for which they are guilty before a holy God deserving his wrath, then what is the greatest need for any child or any person? The greatest need for any child is to be born again. For the Spirit of God to move in that individual's life, to regenerate their nature such that they are able to repent of their sins, to lay down arms, to lay down their selfishness, and to say, yes, I am a sinner, and only by Jesus' sacrifice in my place, only by his resurrection in my place, can I have a new and true life. That is what Jesus is talking about. That is your child's greatest need. Your children must be born again of God's initiative. We can see clearly from John that um, this isn't the will of flesh. It's not like uh, you can just make this happen mechanically. God has to take the initiative to cause children to be born again. Here's the frustrating part of that. You can't cause it. You cannot cause the new birth. As a parent, you cannot cause the new birth of your children, and that is their greatest need. And what does that drive you to then? It drives you first to prayer, right? And I know many of you, I hear your prayers praying for your children who have not yet repented and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. But there has to be an acknowledgement that not just because they were born into a Christian family, they need to exercise repentance and faith. And the only way that's going to happen is if God takes the initiative through the Spirit of God, regenerating their nature such that they can exercise repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But you need to know that. If you don't know that, then you're going to base your parenting on false assumptions. And you might say, well, well what's the use of uh, parenting then? This is just kind of like it's out of my hands. Well, the reality is, just like any evangelistic encounter, God uses means, right? We wouldn't say that just because God, is, God has to work to regenerate a person in order to be saved, all right, we're not going to evangelize. No, because God commands us to, first and foremost, but he uses means to accomplish his will. So first, God must be the center of your family, your marriage must be more important than your children. Your children must be born again of God's initiative. And here's where we're going to spend some time now is this. And this is where we talk about means. Your goal in parenting is training and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. You can turn there if you want. And we looked at this last week. Now we talk about, okay, the greatest need for the child children is to be born again by the work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit of God can accomplish that. But what is then the goal of parenting? What do you do? What is faithful parenting? What does biblical parenting look like? Well, we get the summary marching orders. We get the summary marching orders in Ephesians 6.4. We looked at it briefly last week, but we'll launch from there. Ephesians 6.4. Fathers. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up or nurture them in the training and admonition of the Lord. So here's where we get the commands of what faithful parenting looks like. But faithful parenting, if you don't have the backdrop of the first three points of the first three principles, it's going to get skewed. So you need that backdrop first, which is why we touched on those points first before we start talking about what does faithful parenting look like? What do you need to do? 
empowered by God's grace. First, fathers. God holds fathers primarily responsible for parenting and parenting in the home. Now, that's not to say, remember like we said last week, Paul in this section, he's presenting the ideal, right? That's not to say that things don't fall short of the ideal and there aren't things like single moms parenting children and there's a responsibility there. We're not saying that, nor are we saying that moms don't have an indispensable role in the training of children. We can see that in Proverbs. So we're not saying that, but God holds fathers primarily responsible for the training of children in the home. And there's two parts to this. There's a negative part and there's a positive part. First part is do not provoke your children to anger. Now we know what anger is. We felt like what it means to be angry, but why do we get angry? We get angry because we perceive an injustice and then we react to it. Uh, there's an author called Robert Jones. He has a helpful book called Uprooting Anger, and he defines anger as a whole person's response against perceived injustice. I like that definition. I think it's a pretty good one. A whole person's response against perceived injustice. Isn't it, if you reflect on it, isn't that why you get angry? Because you perceive an injustice, whether right or wrong, but you perceive some injustice and then you get angry. You get worked up, right? Well, what is Paul saying here? Don't, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Meaning what? Well, his vision is that somehow as a father, you are doing things that are wrong or unjustified when you're parenting, and you're making it easy, and perhaps even right on the part of the children, to be angry, to have a whole person response against perceived injustice. In other words, there are ways you act as a parent or can act in which you are doing something wrong, you're parenting, you're being, it was like, what does that look like? But the, the, the net result is that you're aggravating, you're provoking children to say that's unjust and to respond in anger. And the idea is this is a prolonged pattern. What does that look like? What does it look like to provoke um, uh, children to anger? Commentator Andrew Lincoln has a helpful statement on this. He says this. This isn't the final say on it, but it gives us some indications of what is, would this look like, provoking to anger. This involves avoiding attitudes, words, and actions which would drive a child to angry exasperation or resentment and thus rules out excessively severe discipline, unreasonably harsh demands, abuse of authority, arbitrariness, unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, subjection, uh, subjecting a child to humiliation, and all forms of gross insensitivity to a child's needs and its sensitivities. There's a lot that could happen, right? There's a lot that you could do wrong in such a way that's unjust, in such a way that it's going to provoke the child to anger. So that's the negative command. Don't do that, but what? But what? Bring them up, which is, again, that same word for nourish that gets used earlier in Ephesians, earlier in chapter 5, of nourishing one's flesh. The idea is like a plant. You're going to nourish a plant, but nourish them. So here's the positive command. Nourish them or bring them up in the training. The word here is not just discipline. It can include discipline, but it's the broader scope of training like you're training an athlete or you're training someone for a job, training and admonition, admonition has the idea of warning of the Lord. And the of the Lord part is important. 
See, the idea is, Paul has in mind here Christian fathers who are believers, who recognize that their children need to be born again. And what is Paul really saying here? He's saying, okay, then train them in the nurture them in such a way and warn them, admonish them in such a way that it is connected with the worldview of the Lord, right? In other words, you're going to parent in a specifically Christian way. Sometimes you hear about, well, I'm not going to bias my children towards Christianity. I'm just kind of going to let them, you know, kind of grow up and let them decide for themselves. No, Paul says, go ahead, uh, you need to raise them in the training and admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in a specifically Christian way. You're trying to indoctrinate your children. That's a dirty word in our culture, but that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to inculcate in them the truth, the truth of God's worldview, which is the only worldview, in relation to your children. You're trying to train them and warn them in a specifically Christian way. Now, don't forget, that does not mean, nor is Paul saying here, that you can cause the new birth. He's not saying that. He's saying, here are the means that you use Uh, in broad scope, right, this is the broad marching orders of parenting, these are the means that you use, training and admonition of the Lord, to raise children such that by God's grace and only by God's grace and only by God's initiative will he cause them to be born again. So what does this expand out into, right? This is the, these are the broad marching orders of Christian parenting, but what is that, what does that look like? What is that uh, what, 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 what does the training and admonition of the Lord look like? So let's, let's see that a little bit. First, turn back just a page or so to Ephesians 5.1. 5.1. And we're going to look at several kind of aspects of this. But where we could stop off first is what Paul says back in chapter 5, verse 1. And he's talking to the whole congregation in Ephesus broadly. But he says this, Therefore... Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. What is Paul acknowledging there? He acknowledges the family of faith, right? That's who he's talking to. And he's saying, all right, God is our heavenly father and children imitate their fathers. Children imitate their fathers. Their beloved children And what is the first thing that Paul says as far as imitation is concerned with regard to the father with his children? Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God loves his children. And if you're going to imitate God, specifically in relation to parenting, then you're going to love your children. But this isn't kind of an ooey-gooey kind of love that we talk about. We know what love looks like, what biblical love looks like, and we can even see a snapshot of it here. It looks like Christ sacrificing for his people for their good. You can think of Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, God loved his children even when they were in rebellion to him and walking headlong into sin and uh, were rebels against him, and God did what it took to love those children. So even from that, as we think about, okay, the parenting, what does biblical Christian parenting look like? First, it starts with this, imitating God in this sense, you're going to love your children in spite of their behavior. 
You're going to love their children in spite of their behavior and even their rebellion because God has given you those children, and you, if you're going to imitate God, then you're going to love your children in spite of their behavior. But then, okay, that's, that's good, right? And, and, and your children need to see that because when they see that, they're going to see God's love, right? That's that imitation aspect that we're getting here. But what else? What else does training and admonition of the Lord look like? Well, we could think back to us going through the, the biblical story of the family, and you can remember passages like Genesis 18, 9, uh, Genesis 18:19, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, we just read that, and Psalm 78, 1 through 8, which I read at the beginning, and we talked about what is the content of training, God's greatness, his ways, his actions, his marvels that he has done in history, namely, and first and foremost, the gospel and what he has done through Jesus Christ, his marvels, his excellencies that he has done in history, and then flowing from that and the grace that God has shown from that, yes, his standard, his law, his instruction, his commands. Ultimately, for what? For faith. Psalm 78 talks about it. Uh, You're teaching your children who God is, his ways, his excellencies, his awesomeness, and you're teaching them the, the law, the standard that God gives so that they might put their hope in God. Psalm 78, verses 7 through 8. The goal in all of this is that your children might themselves repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, remember what we said. You can't cause that You can't ultimately make that happen because it's only God's initiative in the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to cause them to be born again, but he uses means, and you're using these means of portraying who God is and all his excellencies and his awesomeness. You're, You're talking about his law, his standard, and what he requires of us. Why? To drive them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, if God would so graciously will. And here's the thing, right? You, you may realize my child is not a believer yet. They haven't repented and placed their faith in Christ. So how uh, can I hold them to God's standard? Can I hold them to God's law? Yes, because God's standard is God's standard for believers or unbelievers. He judges everyone by that same standard. And part of how God has designed the law is in his instructions, his commands, is to say, here is my standard Okay, son or daughter, here's God's standard. That's what you must be and what you must do. And there's going to come a point, if they're not a believer, I can't. I can't do it. I can't do it. And that's when you come back with the gospel and say, yes, I know. We, none of us can do it. We can't fulfill God's standard unless you repent and place your faith in Christ. And God empowers you through the power of the Holy Spirit to obey God's standard. So in all of this, as you're teaching and you're teaching God's standard and his ways, you hold that standard, whether they're a believer or unbeliever. And not only are you holding God's standard saying, this is what you must do. You must do this. You must do this. You must do this. Yes, God commands behavior. But what is God most interested in ultimately? And we know this, the heart, the heart. It's not just that you're aiming at behavior. You're aiming at the heart. We saw this in Matthew 15. Matthew 15, Jesus, actually in the context of talking about children obeying their parents, he talks about, in Matthew 15, verse 18, 
this reality. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. So even in this parenting aspect, are you holding God's standard? Yes, but you don't want to just hold God's standards like, okay, here's, you, here's the behavior list that you must have. Well, God's not just interested in the behavior list. He's interested in the heart. And the heart is ultimately what needs to be renewed and saved through the Spirit of God, through repentance of faith in Jesus Christ. And so in all of this, even as you're holding high God's standard, you've got to be aiming at the heart. Because if you're not going to aim at the heart, you can create Pharisees pretty quickly and pretty easily. Those who conform the external behavior, but it's not reaching their heart at all. Biblical parenting has to aim for the heart. That's why Ted Tripp's book, Shepherding a Child's Heart, he talks about that. How do you, how do you aim in your discussions, in your discipline, in all of the aspects of parenting, how do you aim at the heart? Because God needs to renew the heart for that child to be born again and to love God. Behavior disciplines. Yes, you have to address behavior, right? Uh, every parent realizes that you have to address behavior and disobedience, but in such a way that ultimately says, you know where that came from, son. You know where that came from, daughter. It came from your heart. That's what Jesus says. It's not just that you failed to obey. It's that you've got a heart problem that only Jesus can fix. You've got a heart problem that only God, through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, can fix. So you address behavior and disobedience, and um, you, but you're aiming at the heart, which brings us to another aspect, discipline. Discipline. Now, there's two. the Bible actually has a lot to say about discipline in general. Uh, we can think about all of the scriptures, and we can look at, if we're to be imitators of God as parents, then we can say, okay, well, how did God discipline Israel, and how does God discipline believers in the church? Because a lot of those principles are going to carry on. Now, when you talk about discipline, there's two uh, types of discipline that you could talk about. One is formative discipline. What is formative discipline? It's like the patterns of life that you want, like positive patterns of life, positive disciplines, that's kind of how we talk about it, that you want in your life and in your household that train. Discipline is always aimed at training. So you want positive discipline. It's like running uh, drills in basketball, right? You're doing your drills or whatever sport you play, right? You're doing your drills to do what? To train. So you could think about things like what? Well, coming to church each week with your family. That's a discipline. It's a pattern of life that you're putting into place to, ca to uh, cause a certain type of training, and hopefully there's communication going along with that. Actually, what's nice about this is Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, exemplifies both types of disciplines. It exemplifies both formative discipline and corrective discipline. What's interesting about Proverbs, right, we read a little bit of it a couple weeks ago. Proverbs is addressed from a father to a son. And so in that sense, there's a lot of principles there of parenting contained in Proverbs. How do you raise a child in the fear of God to raise them in biblical wisdom. And you can see both formative discipline, you can see the father uh, giving positive instruction and warning and appeal and reason. Don't go this way, go this way. He's doing it ahead of time before anything happens. 
But there's also such things as structures, like coming to church or doing a family worship time where you might read the scriptures together and pray together and sing together. Maybe you do that every night of the week, or maybe you do it three nights of the week, or whatever. You have a set-aside time, but you're doing those structures to do a formative discipline to train. And then there's also corrective discipline. Corrective discipline, which is what? What is corrective discipline? And we'll see this as we wade through some texts and Proverbs, a few anyway. There's a lot. I've given you a list of all these verses. We're not going to get to all of them, but you can look back at them later. But basically, if we were to talk about corrective discipline, if if formative discipline, here's the positive things that we do to train. Well, okay, now we've got a problem. Someone's gone off the path. Someone's gone astray. Someone's disobeyed. Now we've got corrective discipline, which is also aimed at training. Discipline, whether formative or corrective, is aimed at training, which is exactly what Ephesians 4, 6, 6, 4 talks about, training in all of its aspects, including Corrective discipline. What is corrective discipline? Boil it down, it's this. It's a painful warning for the purpose of restoration. It's a painful warning for the purpose of restoration. Even think about something like church discipline. Think about it at that level. Does God have corrective discipline for those who go off astray? Yes, he does. He calls the church to come alongside those who are going astray. They're claiming to follow Christ, and they're not. And what? He initiates a very painful process. Why? Just because... Just because he's retributive? No, because he is seeking to restore that individual to the proper path. And that's what corrective discipline is. Painful warning for the purpose of restoration. Turn to Proverbs. We'll go through a handful of these. There's lots, but let's go through first through Proverbs 13, 24. And again, remember the context of Proverbs. You've got a father appealing to children and trying to train them in the way of walking in wisdom and the fear of God. Proverbs 13, 24. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. So let's unpack a couple things. What is the rod? Well, the rod, at least in the context of biblical Israel, is a stick, and you can imagine what you're going to do with the stick um, for the child. Okay, but what is he saying here? What is the Solomon saying here? You spare the rod, right? Because for whatever reason that might be, and you might think you're showing compassion to a child, but actually Solomon's saying you're hating your child if you withhold it. And we'll see, it's not just this one verse, we'll see other verses reinforce this idea because what is discipline, corrective discipline? It's painful warning for the purpose of restoration. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. There's a contrast here. That the idea is if you discipline, and you should do it out of a motivation of love, it is an expression of love to do what? Painful warning for the purpose of restoration. Let's turn over to Proverbs 22:15. We see another aspect of this. ties back with something we said earlier, Proverbs twenty-two fifteen, Folly, now the idea of folly in uh, the book of Proverbs, it's not just that you're stupid, uh, it's that you're morally stupid. Like your stupidity has a moral element to it. So it's not just you were foolish or you didn't know, this is kind of moral stupidity. 
So it's a moral aspect to it. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen: Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Remember, it goes back to that idea that all, every single child has a, that sinful nature passed on from Adam. Well, part of the expression of that is folly. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from him. And here you see the connection between the heart and the physical, right? There's a connection. God has designed a connection. We are both physical and spiritual beings. We have an internal aspect and an external aspect. And God has designed in some mystery that even in the aspect of physical discipline, it can touch the heart to guard the child. Because what are we ultimately aimed at? We're not just aimed at behavior, we're aiming at the heart. And physical discipline, the painful warning for the purpose of restoration, is aimed at that. Let's turn over to Proverbs 23, 13 through 14. Proverbs 23, 13. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. So we're not talking about life-threatening or abusive uh, hitting. This is not what this is. You strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his life from Sheol. Now, Sheol is kind of the Old Testament conception of the grave, and what he is using it here as, what Solomon is using it here is, is what's the contrast? A um, slight pain now, a little bit of pain now can, go, can guard against pain in the future. Temporary, non-life-threatening pain to reach the heart to avoid greater pain in the future. Proverbs 29, 15. The rod and reproof. So it's not just, uh, okay, we're going to discipline, but there's talk. Reproof is the idea of talk. Uh, you're, gonna, you're not going to just discipline uh, physically, but you're going to have a conversation. You're going to reason. You're going to appeal, what? To reach to the child's heart. The rod and reproof give what? Wisdom. But a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. So again, a contrast. What's the, the, the goal of uh, painful physical discipline, it's, to, it's for the purpose of restoration. It's for the purpose of touching the heart to guard against a wrong path. A little bit of pain now to guard against evil in the future. But if you leave the child to himself, it's going to bring shame in the future. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Go to Hebrews 12. Go to Hebrews 12. So we'll zip forward. Hebrews 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation? So you've got the author of Hebrews talking to his audience, who's probably in Rome, and they're undergoing uh, difficulty, they're undergoing um, trial, and he's exhorting him saying this, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes Proverbs 3, my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? 
If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline done well is an aspect of love because what is it? It's a little bit of pain now to what? Later produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So part of biblical parenting, part of normally... Now again, Proverbs is one of those books, right, that you have to use wisdom to know when does it apply. There are situations... Like, suppose you adopt a child that was abused physically. Okay, now we got to apply wisdom in all of that. But it is one of the primary tools that God has in given to parents to correct and to train children, to touch their hearts, to guard them, and to point them to the heart issue that only Christ can solve. There's also another way, though, that God um, uh, trains. Uh, God trains his children through discipline. How else does God train? If we're talking about imitating God and his parenting and what he does, how else does God train? He doesn't just use discipline. He uses other things, too. For example, Romans 2.4 says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God exercises mercy and patience and kindness and forbearance, and that kindness, that forbearance, leads to repentance. So if we're imitating God, we can talk about God's kindness and exercising kindness. There are times to discipline with pain, and there are times to exercise forbearance and kindness. Or Titus 2.11 through 14 talks about Uh, the coming of the gospel, really, the coming of Christ, and it says, for God's grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. What trains us? God's grace. God's grace. What is God's grace? It's his favor given to those who don't deserve it, purchased by Christ. So it's not just that the physical painful discipline is the only tool. There is also kindness There's also grace and mercy. You have to have wisdom to know when to execute it, but it's all about training. What are you aiming at? Okay, so it's all about training. It's all about admonition. It's warning. It's pointing the child to say, okay, you have a heart problem that only God can resolve, and you need to repent and trust Christ. So what's your goal in all of this? What's your goal in these principles? This. Goal in all of this The goal of parenting is to point them to Christ so that they might repent, have faith, and follow Christ. Remember, you cannot ultimately control it. You cannot ultimately cause your child to believe. But you can be faithful, and you can be absolutely dependent on a merciful God to work through the means that he has given in faithful parenting to, by God's grace, in his timing and in his way, draw the child to repentance and faith, to have them be born again. This is why it's so important. I'll just, uh, we'll, we'll get to the fifth point here in just a second, but it's also important in all of this, if your goal is to see them repent 
and have faith and follow Christ, then it is very, very, you need to be very, very careful in affirming that they are Christians before they are. As soon as you affirm a child, and you can do that in multiple ways, as soon as you affirm a child that you're a Christian, you've inoculated them to, against the gospel if they're not a Christian. You must be very, very cautious of affirming a child's discipleship too early or based on false foundations. You say, maybe they say, well, they made a choice. They prayed a prayer. Okay, but what is the measure in the New Testament for if someone is following Jesus Christ? It is their actions driven from their heart. And that's sometimes really, really hard to discern in a family. Are they trying to please mom and dad or are they trying to please Christ? And really, if you think about it, affirming children in discipleship, affirming anyone in discipleship, that's really the role of the church. The church is to affirm discipleship in the ordinances of baptism and also the tool of membership. So be careful. Be careful. You're driving everything to point them to Christ so that they might repent and have faith and follow Christ. But be careful. Be wary. Which leads us to the fifth principle. You will sin as a parent, so be ready to repent. You will sin as a parent. You will fall short, guaranteed. We all do. We know that. So as you're trying to apply these principles and live them out, you're going to fall short. You're going to sin, so be ready to repent. Repent Repent to whom? Well, to the Lord, of course. You come back to him for grace, saying, Lord, I blew it. I didn't do what I was supposed to do. And you come back to Christ for the grace that's in Christ, the, that what Christ has died for our sins and our shortcomings on the cross, and God the Father views us as clean because of what Christ has done. So you repent to the Lord, but here's the other thing, you repent also to your kids. When you sin against your kids, it's, kids are people, yes? And God gives us principles for when we sin against others, when we sin against people. Turn to Matthew 5. Jesus addresses this. Matthew 5, 23, Jesus is talking to his disciples, giving them instruction, and he says this, 5, 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, so the idea is maybe you came from the way far north in Galilee down to the south in Jerusalem, and you're at the altar, you're at the temple, you're in line, you're about to sacrifice your animal, and then if you are uh, offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out unless you have paid the last penny. Now, obviously, it's framed in terms of a couple adults reconciling. But the principle is, if you know that someone has a legitimate something against you, like maybe you were unjust towards your child, maybe you did something wrong against them, you sinned against your child, then the impetus lies with you to go with them and ask their forgiveness. Or chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 1 through 5, we see some more principles. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me see the, take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Think of that in the context of correcting a child. Perhaps you're trying to remove a speck, but you've sinned against them, and there's a log that you need to deal with. Well, what does Jesus tell you to do? Deal with your log first. Repent to your children. Repent to the Lord, of course, but repent to your children and clear the issue up. Then you can correct and take out the speck. You will sin as a parent, so be ready to repent. Be ready to go to the gospel, both for yourself and to ask forgiveness from your children. Then they will see, okay, it's not just that I'm a sinner and that my parents are perfect. They're sinners too, and they need the grace of Christ just like I need the grace of Christ. And it will be a huge, huge example to them. So as we conclude this, as we looked at these five basic areas of biblical principles for parenting Let's just say close with a few ideas. Here's the thing about this in parenting and families. Neither the state nor the church can usurp the role of parenting. This is a noble, amazing task that God has given to parents and specifically to fathers. You cannot cede that to the state or to the church. Fathers, you've got to take the lead in this. And we understand that there are situations, there are households with single moms, and God gives great grace in those situations. But this is an important task. It cannot be ceded either to the state or to the church. What does the church do? Well, the church is to come alongside families, to equip them, to help them, to do the task that God has called them to do. The church is not called to raise children in the training and admonition of the Lord. Parents are. So what does the church do? The church encourages that, comes alongside. That is what we want to do as a church because we love our families. God has a plan for the families. God uses the families as an amazing tool for discipleship, and that is what we want to do as a church. We're like, well, I'm not part of a family. Or, 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 or what, what, what do we do? Well, we come alongside. We seek to support in a variety of ways families, knowing what their call is. Their call is high from God, and we seek to come alongside them to help them families that have, and parents that have been down the road a bit, they come alongside and say, hey, let me help you with that situation that you're dealing with now. And on the flip side, parents are like, I've never been through this before. Uh, what do I do? Well, you reach out to those who have modeled biblical, faithful parenting, and you ask them for help. It's how the church is supposed to work and come alongside families. What drives all of this? What drives all of this? And you can see it. It's the gospel. The gospel. The gospel that says that Christ has redeemed me, I am a sinner, I deserve his wrath, and yet he has appointed me in some mystery to be a parent, to train up, I'm a sinner, but to train up these children to follow Christ. It's all driven by the gospel, and even as we see, okay, yeah, the family is a primary means of discipleship, the church says, yeah, because of the gospel, we want to come alongside you, we want to help you raise your children in the, to nourish them in the training and admonition of the Lord. It's because of the gospel that we do this. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are so many ways that we are sinful people and we fall short. We fall short of what you 
tell us to do, uh, what you would have us do, how we would support one another in doing it. Lord, help us. Help us to live out your plan and your purpose. And Lord, when we fail, when we fall short, to come back to the gospel, to know that we are covered through Christ's death and resurrection, and to strive to pursue what you would have, Lord, for the purpose of your name going out in the world through our families and through the church, godly families living out what you would have. Lord, we pray for our families, for all of them here. Lord, we're all involved in a family at one level or another. Lord, help us to fulfill the roles you would have for us. Help us to support one another in doing so as the family of faith in the local church. We ask these things and we pray them in Christ's name. Amen.